Hi, and welcome to the Voice of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sobolski. Stay tuned for a quick message from our sponsor. How? 9000, Skynet, or your EMR? Which has done more harm to the world? One really only imperiled a few astronauts, one tried to take over the world itself, and the other was in the Terminator franchise and was really unpleasant. Okay, so EMR didn't really try to take over the world, just the healthcare world, and the results have been, well, unpleasant. We've all seen the studies on burnout and the role EMRs play. What are the real causes? What can we do about it? Don't suffer burnout by a thousand clicks. Read Suki's paper on the causes and solutions to physician burnout. Go to get.suki.ai. That's get.suki.ai to download. And now, to our show. So welcome to the Voice of Healthcare podcast. Once again, I am your host, Matt Sobolski. I am the founder of a company called Ionia Healthcare Consulting. We focus on artificial intelligence and voice-first technologies in healthcare. And I am joined by my co-host, Dr. Reed McClellan. Reed, say hello. Hi, Matt. It's great to be here with you today. Uh, I'm the founder and CEO of Cortina Health, a healthcare technology company focused on restoring the care in healthcare and improving quality of life for both patients and physicians. Wonderful. Uh, Reed, you and I have been on a really fun journey the last couple of years, and we are joined today by a very impressive person, but also someone who's full of passion and purpose, Professor Tony Yun, National Clinical Lead for Innovation at NHS England and NHS Improvement. Tony, welcome back to speak with us. Oh, thanks very much for inviting me back. I think you must be gluttons for punishment for getting me back a second time. <laughs> well, you know, you were just too interesting from our previous conversations not to bring oh, it back. You're the, the, I tell you, Americans are so charming, aren't they? You always have such a nice way with things. That's very sweet of you. Thank you. Of course. Well, I mean, we think the same of you all, too. We can't get enough of the accent nor of the, the word choice. It always I flatters could, us. Do you know, I quite like the American accent over time. I, there is, I, I, it can be so warm and genuine, I find. Maybe that's because I know lovely American people. That might be the reason. Well, I mean, you just got yourself another invite for a third show, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't we get started here? Um, I'm going to kick this off. Uh, tell us about what you're doing. I introduced you as a man of purpose. Um, tell us what you're doing for the NHS, um, why your role really matters. Tell us about it. So about um, six years or so ago now, I was approached by our national medical director. So the man who leads um, clinically the healthcare for our nation, Sir Bruce Keogh. Um, and um, he'd, uh, we've got national leaders who looked after cancer and stroke and heart disease and trauma and a variety of other sort of pathologies and, and medical specialisms. And I think there were probably about a dozen or 15 of them in the nation at that time. But we hadn't got anyone that kind of covered everything, someone that could look at how you bring things together so they weren't siloed in their you know, pathology 
And, you know, what would happen if um, a foreign country approached you and said, what are you doing about healthcare innovation? Who, which clinician did you go through from that lot? Or if the UK or European Space Agency approached you and said, how can we work with the NHS? I mean, who do you send that kind of thing to? So I'd got a track record um, before of, as well as being a clinician, I'm an academic, I've got a PhD in a combination of um, physics and neuroscience. So when I was, so I've always been a, I would say a mad inventor, but I'm meaning mad in a good way. Um, um, uh, uh, and um, so when I was 24 and a junior doctor, um, I'm sure this is common in America, but in Britain, this is rare. I invented a ray gun and I went to the Ministry of Defense, uh, the general in charge of the British Army, um, uh, um, uh, the medical bit of the British Army and said, um, uh, uh, hello, sir, I think I'm a doctor and I think I've invented a ray gun. And long story short, I got £100,000 um, funding to go to UCL to pay for my PhD, where I converted a magnetic missile launching system um, uh, that we had down at Porton Down, which is one of our military uh, research establishments, um, into the world's ever uh, largest ever built magnetic stimulator. Um, now, it, we wanted to use it to expel kidney stones, actually, because I wanted to be a urologist and look at how we could stimulate the kidney to do that. But And it doesn't work as a ray gun, uh, but it was a really interesting PhD to do. But uh, um, So I was keen on inventing things, and it was during my PhD I started my first company. And I've started uh, four companies since then, raised about £5 million of private sector funds, grown them and exited them all, some really well. Some were just complete disasters, but that's the startup way. But the trouble was I had to fight the National Health Service my whole way because they said, we're set up to deliver clinical care. We're not set up to support businesses and enterprise. What are you trying to do? And so um, if you could see the scars on my back, and I was just trying to improve patient care in a different way, saying, well, if we get our ideas out of our labs and out of our hospitals and into businesses perhaps we could build something that's sustainable that will really make a difference to patient care because at the moment our ideas are just dying and are not making that difference and actually as clinicians we're really well placed to identify the problems and then perhaps um, propose the solutions and develop them so long story short at the age of 30 i um, remortgaged my house so that was over 20 years ago now. And the um, and I put £150,000 of money, so that's what, over $200,000 of money I didn't have on a loan from the bank into my first business. And it was then I told my wife what I had done with our mortgage. And the key lesson I, I think I learned there um, was that, first of all, well, you can't afford to fail um, because once you risk that yourself in it, but also my wife couldn't afford to leave me because we'd both be broke then. So 20 years later, we're still married, three children. So it kind of, it could have gone either way, I suppose. But um, so, uh, you know, I finished my PhD and my surgical training. And uh, as a attending physician, I think you call them in the United States, um, got my academic post um, at um, our regional university and then helped them raise half a billion pounds um, to build out a series of three um, life science business parks in the county I live in, in Essex. And so when I met Bruce Keogh, our national medical director, you know, six, seven years ago now, and he got this idea in his mind, we need a clinician that can cover everything, that understands the life science space as a whole, but is also a clinician, 
a respected academic. And, you know, we need to understand this startup world too, this entrepreneurship thing. And, and so I don't think there were a long list of candidates he had, um, not in the United Kingdom. I think in the United States, you probably have, you've got quite a lot of celebrated clinicians who are entrepreneurs. But, but in the UK at the time, we didn't have many. And so we met and he was really impressed with the things I'd done. And he said, well, we're looking to put a clinician, and this is the first time we think this has been done, in a leadership role for a whole nation's healthcare innovation. Do you want, do you want to take that on and have a go? And yeah. uh, I know, so wow. Yeah, <laughs> what, wow. What an, so I said, well, what does the job involve? He said, um, well, we, um, we want you to address the inequality agenda so the latest, greatest things get taken up across the National Health Service. Um, we want you to grow the life science economy in the UK. Um, you'll become the senior advisor to the British government on um, uh, healthcare innovation, um, clinical healthcare innovation right across this space. And then the last thing, he said, you know, we'd like you to make England the go-to place on the planet for medical innovation, but you have no money or no funding, uh, no money or no power rather. So um, uh, go and see what you can do. And um, so, it, of course, that's an impossible ask, isn't it? Um, the, uh, but it's the NHS way. We often don't give you very much resource, but he gave me the most important thing. And the most important thing he gave me was his blessing and permission. And when you've got air cover from uh, the doctor who's is the senior doctor in your nation, um, you can do quite a lot of things. So I, I learned the ropes in, in the system, kept quiet for the first few months or so, and then started forming new policy ideas and pitching those. And in my first, I think, three or four months at NHS England, I was still a practicing surgeon and an academic. This was just another part-time role. And um, some junior doctors came to see me. And um, one of them was called Jean Neem. And Jean uh, had founded a company called Touch Surgery. Now, Touch Surgery, uh, if your listeners look that up, was bought by Medtronic in February this year. And I think it was about $500 million they bought that for. Um, I, I know, it's incredible. And Touch Surgery is an amazing platform. All the operations you want to do on your iPad takes you through the cognitive steps of everything. You can compare yourself to the world's leading surgeons. And it's free to download. It's just incredible. Um, and of course, they also, because they got lots of data sets around how you do operations, um, they've actually made some quite major advances in surgical robotics. And I think that's why Medtronic made that um, purchase, because actually the patents they got around computer vision and recognizing what's in that operating field and how you might move instruments around was, was really key. So Jean came to see me and a few other clinicians came to see me. And they were young, they just founded their company. And he said, um, we've been told we can't be doctors and entrepreneurs. And he said, I've just raised my first round of funding. So I've either got to quit. And he was a, a plastic surgeon training at Imperial College London. And he said, I've been quite clearly told it's either surgery or entrepreneurship, not both. Um, he said, so I quit. And I said, don't do that, that's terrible. Don't quit the night. No, oh I know. God. Oh, can you believe it? In America, you would fate these people as heroes. These are absolutely. I, I just and in Britain, we tell you no one haven't you. So, I, w I went to see Sir Bruce, and I said to him, 
look, you know, there's this problem. And um, he said, actually, it's worse than that, Tony. 5% of doctors in the United Kingdom are quitting healthcare each year um, and they're not coming back. And it's for a whole variety of reasons, but many of them are going to industry. And actually, if you look at the figures, uh, about 50% were taking a break after their first couple of years. But in the United States, figures can be even worse. When you look at Stanford, I think the year I looked at, it was a third of people qualifying from there weren't taking up residency posts and going into industry. Um, but actually, if you look at the burnout rates, it's almost one in two doctors at stages in their lives. So it's you know, so lots of doctors are suffering and, and, and people were voting with their feet in the United Kingdom and, and leaving for industry. And he said, the trouble is, they are some of our brightest clinicians, you know, and we need to retain them in the system. So he, he said, go away and say what you can do about it. <laughs> so I, I, I came back to him and said, well, do you know, we've supported clinicians who want to be academics and clinicians who want to be leaders and clinicians who want to be teachers but if you're a practicing clinician and you want to be an entrepreneur, we do the opposite of support you. So um, I said, so I've got an idea. Why don't we launch a training program just like we do for those other areas, but we'll call it a clinical entrepreneur program. What would it look like? Well, um, I said, well, let's give them a commercial coach and mentor. If they're in training, let's give them an opportunity or to either be part-time or step out for a year or two to pursue their enterprise. Um, let's arrange a whole uh, series of networking and educational days and events, connect them to customers and funding. We wouldn't pay them. It wouldn't be a, 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 you know, a salaried position, but we'd help them raise the funding. And while I was forming those ideas, I visited um, my friend and colleague, Daniel Craft, down at Singularity University in San Diego, been to his excellent exponential medicine conference. Um, which was eye-opening for me about some of the stuff going on. But I also went up to Stanford and visited Paul Yock at the biodesign program there, and he's done some amazing work uh, in what they're doing. And really, I would say uh, that used to be the leading entrepreneurial training program in healthcare on the planet. And I told Paul about my plans. I said, Paul, I want to launch this entrepreneur program, not dissimilar to yours, but it'll be more, yours is full-time and quite concentrated. Mine will be part-time and very distributed because our doctors can't leave. They need to, they need to come together, um, you know, every six to eight weeks or so. We'll educate them for a day or two. Then we send them back into the health service to do more laps, test their ideas, you know, run bits of their business and then come back and we'll check they're all right, give them some more education and support. Um, and I said, but we're planning to have hundreds and then thousands of people on the programme. And I thought um, uh, Paul was going to have a heart attack when I said that. He said, "You're what? Hundreds and thousands? You'll never be able to maintain the quality. We we can't partner you because I was hoping we could partner them." He said, "We have a dozen, maybe fifteen, twenty people on our program each year, and he gets several million dollars a year to run that program." And I was proposing a program with hundreds and thousands of innovators, and I had no money. And I, I think he thought this guy is going to fail. Um, he didn't say that. He was very generous to me and very supportive. But uh, I appreciate they got a different model at Stanford. Anyway, I pitched this to um, Sir Bruce, and um, he said, "Okay, go away and make it happen." Um, so I got a bit of people to support me in NHS England. I got given some human resource to help make it happen. So long story short, is about four and a half years ago now. We launched the first cohort. 
Since then, um, we've had 507 clinicians on our program. Um, they have founded, uh, I think it's 226 startups between them. They've raised over 250 million pounds wow. in funding to take their startups forward. Over 140 doctors who have quit the National Health Service have come back to work in it part time. So pursuing their dream to be a clinician and be an entrepreneur. We've impacted over 20 million patients that we can count. Um, and we're now responsible as a program for 4% of the UK life science industry. And that's from scratch, and that's bigger than many countries on the planet. You know, um, uh, 220 odd life science companies, many countries don't have. I, we went on a visit to Spain and I was talking with um, to people in the Spanish government. And I saw how big is your life science industry? And they said, well, uh, it's about 500 companies, but most of them are just distributors of other technology. And, and what we built was, you know, 220 odd innovative companies that were generating new things. So quite a remarkable thing. And, and, and what we've done is empowered our most valuable asset. You know, the National Health Service is the largest employer of professionals on the planet. We employ over 1.3 million people and we, we hadn't leveraged our greatest asset, which is the intellectual capital of our workforce. We should, we should have been mining them for their greatest ideas and supporting them to develop them. And yet we'd, um, we, we hadn't done that. And as I say, in the United States, you've, you know, and we wonder why you have all the big health technology companies and, and other things. And you look at the, the spin outs that are coming out. Um, when I was at Stanford, I, I met the clinicians who developed HeartFlow, which is the AI algorithm for looking at whether you'll benefit from a coronary sin. And I think recently they just raised, uh, was it 200 or 500 million? Once it gets into the hundreds, I forget how much. And you know, it's not an uncommon story for clinicians who take forward things. Sure, you have many thousands of healthcare startups and many of them will fail, but you're not afraid in the United States, was my experience, to, to run this experiment and actually you accept failure and go, okay, that didn't work, let's move on and try something else. Whereas in Britain, the prospect of failure was, uh, well, you can't have that, that won't be acceptable. And, and we had a very different culture. So we've, we've, we've completely transform things now in in England and um so much so that this and I still don't get give very much given very much money to run the program we had over 700 applications this year from clinicians across the system with new startups and some of the I've seen we're just going through the shortlisting and interviewing process at the moment and I've seen some of the applications and they are just gobsmacking and I go and, and it's, so it's such a privilege and it's not just doctors, it's nurses, dentists, allied health practitioners, physios, pharmacists, clinical scientists, and even managers now are stepping forward. So who would have expected um, from the National Health Service, the world's largest entrepreneurial training program? And you know, I'm really proud because I, I looked at what was available publicly at all the Ivy League universities uh, in the US on their life science startup and the NHS beat them every year for the last four years if you add them all together so I was going that? 
Well, it's, there's there's always been a bit of competition across the Atlantic. Sure. A healthy there? one, a healthy one. <laughs> now, let me ask you this, Tony. Um, you've described uh, a history here. You've described what I would say is somewhat of a paradigm shift of the role of the clinician in the NHS and in their communities, not only as a caregiver and a healer, but a thinker, a doer, and a jobs creator, a value creator. Um, how do you keep it going? Wow. So um, I think that can be answered on a number of um, different levels. I think had, uh, first of all, had I invented this or come up with this, I don't think that would be sustainable. I think what happened was there was a, there was something bubbling up under the surface here. And all I did was just unearth it. I, I just took the earth off the top of it, gave it some food, some water to some light and encouraged it to grow. And so I think you're right. There, there is there was a change going on. I think um, the you know smartphone revolution, the internet, the digitization of things made it much easier for people to do startups. I mean, I've got a medical student on our program from the Royal London Hospital who's turning over about three million pounds a year from his student bedroom in East London. And I go, go figure that on a digital platform that now the code is written. It's not costing him very much to maintain. And I'm going, how is that? So I think this was happening and people were seeing it from particularly coming from the United States and going, well, actually, we can do... And they wanted it. They, they wanted to have a go. People had this real desire. I think many clinicians, when they first start out and come into medicine... They do it because they want to make a difference. There's something in them that's saying, you know, I, okay, I have to get a job, but if I do it, I want to do something that has real impact. And so many clinicians I speak to, it's so personally rewarding to, or for me as a surgeon, to operate on someone and to make a real difference to that individual's life. And yet, if you do a startup in healthcare and that grows, Perhaps you wouldn't just affect the patient in front of you. Perhaps you could have impact on patients, not just across your country, but perhaps across the world. And kind of, I think that's a tantalizing thing for clinicians. And they kind of go, do you know, we could, that, that difference I wanted to make, um, maybe we could do it for everyone. And, and so, so many of the people I meet, it's those, you know, and isn't it great in a world that might seem sometimes more um, uh, isolated and uh, concentrated on their own internal needs rather than looking at the needs of humans and humankind, and that these people are prepared to take these sacrifices and these small steps and have a go and say, actually, can I do this? And, and we've had some really humbling examples, like young um, Nadine Haram who is one, uh, she's now a consultant plastic surgeon at St. Thomas's Hospital in London, but she had a startup um, or has a startup called Proximi. Um, and this is essentially um, uh, the uh, hollow dock from Star Trek. You know, the pop-up hollow dock that comes up? Well, she, she's invented it. And I'm going, you're okay. So in the United States, it's, it's Hollywood fiction. In the National Health Service, it's real. You're kidding. When I saw that, I went there. And it's, it's incredible. So you, um, she is able to transport. So she has a camera sitting in the office. So there is a real surgeon. It's not 
a computer program clearly or a, a clinician who will sit anywhere in the world at um, some place and on a green screen image she will um, uh, take the image of that surgeon and then overlay on that the actual live operation going on. Um, so for example in um, Peru where they got general plastic surgeons um, they hadn't got specialist surgeons um, for cleft palate surgery. And that's a very refined thing that you need specialist training on. And um, so what they did was one of the uh, surgical team in London, in fact, there was a team in America as well, would via the Proxime platform literally scrub into that operation and you'd be able to see the hand of the remote surgeon coming in and showing the Peruvian local surgeon where to make that incision how to uh, retract the tissues, where to sew things up. And within three months, they've managed to train completely remotely that plastic surgical team, and they were getting excellent results. But they did similar things in war zones, so in Camp Bastion in Afghanistan and in Syria, where you might have a general surgical team, but actually you needed some trauma expertise. So the British military have taken our specialist trauma surgeons in our trauma centres in the United Kingdom and literally transported their hologram into the operating theatres in Camp Bastion to um, help with trauma that had occurred to a British soldier where they needed that specialist bit of advice and expertise to show them what to do. So we're transforming lives across the planet. And that's just one example. I've got 507. That, that, that's truly like absolutely incredible. And um, you talk about next generation technology. Now, 4% of all the UK's life sciences. That, that, that number is also staggering. So I guess I have two questions. One is what uh, types of life science, so we've heard a lot about the technology, especially computer technology, is that the primary place that the NH, uh, NHS's entrepreneurship really uh, works towards as far as startups? And then secondly, with all these incredible startups launching, how much money has the UK uh, saved over the past several years? Okay, so those are all, all great questions. And on the first one, um, it's the majority of the companies are based either in what I would call medical technology, so electromechanical and physical kinds of things, or in the digital health space. Um, and there could be combinations of the two. There are some people who are in the personalized medicine space, so genomics, point of care testing, those kinds of things, and one or two who are in the drug discovery space. But drug discovery, as you'll be aware, is a, is a much larger thing. One of our really in, in, interesting little guys. Very, very costly to, to, it to is. discover. No, 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 it is. But, but simple things that drug companies might not have taken forward. So one of our um, entrepreneurs has discovered, would you, I mean, would you believe it, that there is an organic, natural urease inhibitor in watercress? Now, um, you might think, okay, what's the benefit of that? Well, when um, babies uh, wet their nappies, um, the urine that is passed, um, the urea is split, and it's split into ammonia is one of the products of that, and it is the ammonia that causes the um, nappy rash or the ammoniacal dermatitis and that's split by bacteria that are found on the surface of the skin and of course that's also true in the elderly who have continence issues and this can be a big thing particularly in nursing homes 
So, and what this entrepreneur discovered that actually there was a natural urease inhibitor in watercress. He found a technique of refining that down. He's based in the University of Plymouth, I think. And now they've um, uh, produced a um, barrier cream that you can put on your infant that is completely organic and plant-based and prevents them getting nappy rash. Okay, it's not a new drug or something, but actually that urease inhibitor potentially has benefit in kidney stones in their prevention, in a, in a range of other medical conditions too. Um, and of course, um, young Kyle Stewart, who's the innovator, thinks watercress is good for everything. So, But you see, you can take organic compounds and then put them into products and services. So we do do things like that. And with your second question to how much we've saved, so there isn't, uh, we haven't conducted the calculation yet. We are just commissioning a formal health economic study and review. But the gross value add, or GVA as it's known in economic terms in our country, where we look at public spending and how much it's returned, from a very simplistic point of view, I've been running the program for about, well, for four years now. And um, we get a, a little less than a couple of hundred thousand pounds a year to run it. So, and uh, even if we said it was a million pounds spent in four years, which it hasn't been, and they've raised 250 million pounds, mostly from the private sector, that's a 250 million to one return for every pound invested by the UK taxpayer. I haven't heard of any government anywhere on the planet. Get, and that doesn't include the job creation, the economic growth, the taxes that have been paid, the supply chains that build up alongside those companies, the export benefits to the UK, the trading partnerships that are built, the growth in the life science industry. We've had a lot of companies coming to the UK. You might have thought in Brexit that actually it wouldn't be seen as such a good opportunity. Maybe you should be in mainland Europe. But what we're finding is people want to come and work with the world's largest healthcare system. Now, I had the, um, I have one of the directors of Bose um, who are based in Boston, I think, you know, the speaker and manufacturer, and they want to get into hearing aids. They want to do over-the-counter hearing aids. And so this um, director um, flew over to London and said, Tony, I'm going to be in London. I'd like to meet you. I thought, okay, I don't know why the director of really cool, a really cool speaker company wants to meet me. And, and he said, um, did you know the National Health Service is the largest purchaser of hearing aids on the planet? And I said, well, I'm the director of innovation. I should have known that. I didn't. And he said, we want to work with you. We want to understand how we can democratize access to really high quality hearing aids, but that patients can get access to directly themselves over the counter. And I said, wow, that sounds like a really great idea. And actually, I teamed him up with one of our clinical entrepreneurs, and that, that's progressing. So I think there are multiple benefits to the United Kingdom for doing this. And it's, you know, and so we did this pre-COVID we said we want to have a program that gives us that edge because lots of the edgy things, lots of the things that give you that advantage are coming from the startup world. And so, and you know, when COVID hit, we hit a crisis, as many countries did in the National Health Service. And um, I think you had it in this country, uh, in the United States as well, um, a ventilator shortage. 
and the, sure. the United Kingdom government launched a ventilator challenge. And they went out going, we think we're going to run out of ventilators. We need to get on and mass manufacture them. Now, they're very difficult to produce. And one of the first thing that happened with um, supply chains was that they broke down because companies use supply chains from across the world to give their components to make their machines. And no, everyone closed their borders. COVID was rife everywhere. And you couldn't get the components to build a ventilator, even if you had a production line to do it. So um, the government put this call out. And would you believe it? One of our 500 entrepreneurs had actually, for the last three years, been developing a low-cost portable ventilator. I managed to get him on the um, pitching team that went into the cabinet office, which is the bit that runs government in the United Kingdom. And this little orthopedic way, he's quite a big orthopedic surgeon, he's built like a rugby player or an American football player, you would call me, so he's not so little. Um, and he, uh, I suppose orthopedic surgeons are built the same the world over. They're all fairly um, large. That was a stereotype, I'm sure it's shocking. I apologise for the more slightly built orthopods in the world. Um, but he's, he's a big fellow. And he went in and he pitched to the cabinet office and he said, look, I've designed this low-cost portable ventilator. It doesn't use any existing supply chain components. And it was built on a, an ambu bag, which is the bag we squeeze at the side of the patients and converting that into a ventilator. And he, the government took forward 15 separate projects and there was Rolls-Royce and Dyson and Mercedes and a variety of other companies, aerospace companies involved in it as well as um, automotive. And young Alistair Darwood, a little orthopaedic doctor from North London, became one of the government's pioneers for this. He was embedded in the Formula One racing team in Red Bull and Renault in Milton Keynes. And over the next months, around £10 million of funding was injected into that project. And they were about 24 hours away from pushing go on the production line to produce 5,000 mini portable ventilators. When the numbers changed in central government, we realised we were actually going to peak at about 4,000 ventilated cases uh, uh, later on in April, that was. And um, so we didn't need the program anymore. Um, so that was to the great sadness of the Formula One teams and, and Alistair, that was um, program was pulled. But the point was, we had built a program that allowed us to do deal with things that were unexpected coming forward. And we did it because we supported the startup world at scale. No other nation on the planet had that ability. And I just went, wow, do you know? No, that, that, that's incredible. Actually, one of our uh, future uh, guests for the Voice of Healthcare, uh, Dr. Matthew Putman, is CEO and founder of Nanotronics. He did something similar over in Brooklyn Yard, and because they are actually a manufacturing uh, company using artificial intelligence, he was able to basically 3D print uh, uh, very low-cost ventilators to jump in to assist out uh, the ventilator shortage as well. So, so uh, yes, we know we know we knew that uh, shortage well, and it was a very scary time. You know, the NHS, as you mentioned, the NHS is the the you know the largest employer of um, uh, of a certain caliber of individuals, but with being the largest employer and also being government run, there normally seems to be a lot of bureaucracy that comes with that. 
And the beauty of the startup world, uh, me being one myself, is that we're scrappy and we can turn on a dime, which is literally the exact opposite of what normally happens in bureaucracy. So how do you guys have over 500 plus startups and you're a, quote, division of the government? Um, you, yes, it, it sounds like a paradox, doesn't it? Right. Um, how have you made that happen? Well, you know, I think people uncover insights into human behavior and nature. And sometimes, and I don't think any other country in the world could have uncovered this because you actually needed the world's largest unified healthcare system, which brought together such a concentration of healthcare professionals in one organization that, um, you know, they were just bouncing around. We can't innovate. We can't take these things forward. In the United States, you have much smaller healthcare systems generally, and they compete against one another. And therefore, they're not going to be so collaborative and feel a kind of a, a unity and sense of purpose, unless you hit a grand challenge on something like COVID, where everyone, the boundaries come down and people work together. So we kind of um, had that advantage where... Um, we, uh, I was given a bit of permission. They took a risk on me. And I think, you know, had it all gone wrong, maybe I'd have been fired. I don't know. But, um, you know, a, a really senior person in the NHS, so my chief exec, Simon Stevens and Bruce Keogh, um, took this view and said, Do you know, there is something in this startup world. We're seeing these amazing things, particularly coming out of the United States, but in different parts of the world as well. And we'll be missing a trick if we don't support that. So we tried to de-risk it. We tried to ring fence it. So, and in healthcare, we don't like risk, do we? We don't, Safety is paramount. We try and de-risk everything we can. But actually, in evolution, it's not like that. Is it? Evolution runs thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of experiments day in, day out. And then it finds a mutation that works and then that mutation is then grown and, and a change and a benefit happens. And it's happened for millions of years. But if you're um, doing the startups and you're just doing 10 a year, you're unlikely to find the mutation that really works and is going to have benefit. But if you're doing hundreds and potentially thousands of them, then you will find the companies that are going to raise a lot of money and start making a massive difference to patient care. Um, so it doesn't have to be um, Silicon Valley tech giant, you know, startups we're launching. We've got, I had a call today with, um, she's a black British nurse who's absolutely passionate and committed about equality and diversity and has been as exercised around the issues around Black Lives Matters as, um, uh, you know, anyone you've met. And she's got a startup where she wants to create a digital platform where people can buddy up and talk about their experiences of racism and intolerance on a platform so they can talk about it and feel they're supported. And there's nothing like that that exists. So although it might be some great big tech advance, actually lots of people suffer from depression and hurt and they don't enjoy going to work because of... Um, you know, experiences they're having. And if you don't name it and you don't talk about it, you can do nothing about it. So it's not just tech giants and startups. It's um, 
you know, it's amazing things that deal with some very real live issues too. Yeah, you guys are really doing translational medicine. You guys are uh, focusing on a problem that the clinicians, whether they be nurses or physicians, uh, see that doesn't have a good solution. And then either together themselves or with some of their teammates of engineers and PhDs, they go to set out to solve that problem. And the best part is you then turn around and you deliver that uh, care back to the patient population. So that, that, that's incredible. And, and I think uh, to agree with that. And, um, but, you know, one of the things, if you can do this in healthcare, I think you can do it in other sectors, too. And too often, the big corporates come in, don't they, and they just buy up the startups because they can't do innovation internally. Wouldn't it be amazing if other sectors in our societies actually learn from what's going on in the healthcare startup space? It's vibrant in the States and it's vibrant in the United Kingdom. And I've recently had a number of conversations with governments, the Australian government and uh, some governments in Africa, some in Europe and Asia, around can we build a global community around healthcare entrepreneurship and startups and you'll have to watch this space i'm hoping in the very near future we'll be making some announcements about that and i can't announce them yet but boy have we got a partner in the united states who wants to do that one of your big players wants to come on board and join us and that will be amazing because we'll bring the know-how of the United States, the investment of your fantastic investor community power, the largest um, uh, sort of monetary value of a healthcare market and system on the planet, which is a great asset and benefit you've got. Just imagine bringing the best bits that each country can do together. Wow. So th this will all happen in the next year. You wait and see. Well, we are certainly... Uh, excited about the possibility and we will continue these conversations with you and your team uh, and we celebrate with you the success that you've had recently and we're rooting for you into the future as well as hopefully collaborating with you so professor tony young thanks for joining us on the voice of healthcare podcast today thanks for having me along excellent this has been the voice of healthcare podcast we'll see you next time